these mysteries that you liked as a kid may be gone, but here's mysteries you didn't even realize were still out there. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This is the first episode in a three-part summer series called Science Camp, where we're exploring the human side of science. In this episode, we'll hear about a man whose faith questions led to scientific curiosity. Ryan Haupt grew up around animals. My grandpa bred uh, Arabians and Great Danes because when he started breeding Arabians, he wanted a dog that the horses wouldn't miss and step on by accident so he's like took like he took like the smallest horse breed and the largest dog breed and just started breeding both of them yeah more or less like accidentally put the saddle on one of the danes growing up around animals and people who cared about animals and worked with animals and it just i don't know it was always it was always a fascination with me and it's it's never gone away And Ryan's love for animals easily transferred to cryptozoology, literally the study of hidden animals. The goal of a cryptozoologist is to prove the existence of folkloric animals like Bigfoot. I liked the idea that there were animals we didn't even know about yet. When you read stories about how people didn't believe that mountain gorillas exist, then we go find them. You read about people who didn't believe that snow leopards exist, and then you go find them. And so suddenly, the logical conclusion is like, well, so if we're doubting the people who say Bigfoot exists, are we gonna, isn't the story gonna end the same way? <laughs> and are we gonna eventually realize that they were there and we just hadn't found them yet? And so there was that, that thrill of discovery and that air of mystery about finding these things that, that could potentially exist. It just captivated me. And like, and it was all, you know, it was also things like aliens and, and just the unknown, things that are, Mysterious, a little bit scary, a little bit dangerous. You know, I just, I I think I wanted that life. I wanted that Indiana Jones lifestyle of traveling the world, going to exotic places, getting in trouble, being in danger. But I just didn't care so much about a golden idol. I cared about a giant footprint in in the snow on some mountain in the Himalayas, so. Growing up in West Virginia, Ryan's family went to an evangelical church. The church taught something called Young Earth Creationism. That's the belief that the Earth is about 6,000 years old, and all the species that currently exist look just like they did when the Earth began. No evolution. Not being taught evolution in school meant that the only place that I heard anything about the concept of evolution was from the pulpit. And so having this very conservative evangelical Christian church meant that they were very against evolution and very pro-creationism. I had all these books growing up that were ostensibly dinosaur books, but they were all written from a perspective of creationism. They're giving you legitimate information about dinosaurs. So like they give you actual statistics about, you know, how big was Triceratops or T-Rex being a carnivore. And the those things are true, but then they layer in all of this like undercutting of the science to promote more of a creationist Christian message to the point where Some of my books had drawings of T-Rex feeding off of fruit trees in the Garden of Eden because there were no carnivores in the Garden of Eden. Don't know if you knew that. And... uh, (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) 
And it would, it would do these things where it would kind of try to undercut science. And so one of the ones I remember the most distinctly was showing how uh, if you take the skeleton of an animal and then try to guess what it looked like, you could be really wrong. And so they took a skeleton of a dog and they reconstructed it with like a peacock tail or something like that. And so what they're subtly doing there is they're saying, you can't trust what a scientist says the reconstruction of the world used to look like is because they could be wrong. And then by the time I got to high school, it became a much more concentrated message of evolution is wrong, creation is right. There was no subtlety or subtext. It was just, that's the message. To the point where they would bring in speakers uh, for like after hours seminars on understanding creationism as a way to confront people who believed in evolution. And my dad and I went to one of those. It was really interesting. My dad being a physician, and this was also in the early years of a lot of these antibiotic resistant bacteria becoming a big problem for the medical field. And so at one point, you know, when this guy was saying evolution can't possibly occur, it's not observable, blah, 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 blah. My dad just raised his hand and goes, well, if I've got a, if I've got a culture of bacteria and 1% of them are resistant to an antibiotic and I introduce the antibiotic to the system, kill all but 1% and then wait for that 1% to grow back to the original population size due to a genetic change in the population over time, is that not evolution? And I was like, Oh yeah, that's a really good question. Like, why hadn't I thought about that? And so that was the earliest moment where I can remember somebody pointing out that there was a flaw in the logic that was pretty easy to demonstrate. Like, that's, that's an experiment anyone can do. Ryan says a lot of creationists respond to this experiment by dividing evolution into macro and micro evolution. Micro evolution is small changes within a species over a short period of time, like Ryan's dad described. Macroevolution is what most of us think of when we think of evolution. Huge shifts over vast time periods. Young Earth creationists don't accept macroevolution, but sometimes they allow for microevolution, including Ryan's dad. Because I was in two things like aliens and Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, he also wanted me to be critical of those things because he didn't necessarily believe them. And so he would teach me methods of skepticism <clears throat> And how to approach things logically where you kind of break them apart. So, you know, uh, look at the evidence, look at the motive of the person presenting the evidence, follow that story. It was essentially his version of Carl Sagan's extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But the problem was when I started to use that same technique on some of our Christian beliefs, and those beliefs also weren't holding up to the scrutiny. And that was where the friction between him and I kind of started in earnest, I think. You know, the butting heads finally came to a point where I, in a very teenage and immature way, called him out publicly about forcing me to go to a church I didn't agree with the principles of anymore, and that led to this big fight. The conclusion we ended up coming to was that I had a car, I could go to a church of my choosing, but I had to go to church. And then, in, again, in my teenage rebelliousness, I like went to the Mormon church, and then I went to the mosque one week, and he was just perpetually annoyed with my ways of sticking to the letter of our agreement, but still defying <laughs> the things that he stood for and believed in. But there was one church Ryan's dad absolutely wouldn't let him go to. There's this one verse in the New Testament 
believers in Christ will be safe from serpents. And this one type of Christian found in Appalachia takes that literally. And so that's why they handle snakes. And, and I was so, I was so ready to go to that church because I've always been into animals, but yeah, that was where my dad put his foot down and said like, no, you've, <laughs> you've already annoyed me with the places you've got. I'm not letting you go somewhere actually dangerous. You gotta, you gotta admire fundamentalists when they're committed. I yeah. mean, they were committed. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan graduated high school and moved across the country to a big public university in California. University of California, Santa Cruz, go slugs. It was just a huge, huge culture shock. My experience growing up in West Virginia, you had to believe something. Like it didn't, people were tolerant with what you believed. You were, you could be Hindu, you could be Buddhist or whatever. You just had to believe something. And it was the absence of belief or even the hostility towards belief that I had never experienced. And that was what I experienced when I moved to California was people were openly hostile to the idea of religion. And I was like, what? There's people who don't, believe anything and there's people who think that religion is bad this is this is new this is uncomfortable but yeah it was it was weird to go to a place where people just dismissed my faith as not real and the other thing that was very confronting was i knew the bible pretty well and it was clear they didn't and so that was what again as this very curious person I'm like, well, you're dismissing this thing that you haven't even read. So how can you like make that call? Like at least read the book. And that was my attitude then as I started college. And it led to a lot of like, you know, dining hall intellectual debates, we'll call them (laughs) as much as freshman college students are able to have with each other. When you were in college, there was this critical moment where you could choose the path of legitimacy or the path of, I don't know, like pseudoscience, I guess. Yeah. So why did you pick paleontology as opposed to like being the person that looks for Bigfoot? I took a course my first year, Natural History and Evolution of Dinosaurs, taught by Hildy Schwartz. And she made paleontology seem as cool as I imagined it would have been as a kid. She would come in, we'd be talking about sauropods, which have these, you know, the long neck dinosaurs also have incredibly long tails. So long, in fact, they taper out to a very fine point. And so there's a hypothesis that they were able to crack it like a whip. And so she would come into class with a bullwhip, Indiana Jones style, and demonstrate the physics of cracking a whip to show how that could have worked. Because, you know, the crack is actually a a, a sonic boom, right? It's actually breaking the speed of sound. And so she would come in and do that in a lecture hall. I'm just like, well, that's cool. (laughs) And so it was one of those courses where, you know, I I might have sat in the middle or towards the back on the first day and then slowly was inching my way forward until I was the front row kid. (laughs) She brought in bowling balls one time because there's those pachycephalosaurid dinosaurs which have like the the bony dome on their head. And you often see them uh, depicted as headbutting, like bighorn sheep or rams. And that hypothesis was kind of going out of favor at the time. In part because if you've got two spherical surfaces, it's actually pretty hard to get them to connect well. They're more likely to glance off each other, slide off each other. And so it was the, the hypothesis was coming around to more that they were probably hitting each other in the flanks or in other parts of the body with the domed head. But to demonstrate how hard it is to get two spherical objects to connect like that, she brought in two bowling balls, asked for volunteers. Uh, my hand and my buddy Rodney's hand both went up and we had to hold these bowling balls to our head and we were supposed to charge at each other and it was supposed to not work, but we pulled it off like perfectly. Like we had a perfect billiard ball <laughs> collision and then staggered back like bleary eyed, you know, like water tearing up a little bit from the pain we had just put ourselves through. 
So she would do things like that that just made it seem so cool and fun and and logical. Like it all, I think that was the thing that surprised me the most was that when somebody finally described how evolution worked and showed me the phylogeny of dinosaurs, you know, the interrelationships amongst all the dinosaurs and said, you know, well, the, the tree splits here because like this ankle bone changes shape. The tree splits here because this hip bone is tweaked slightly. And I'm like, well, that, I mean, that's just putting a puzzle together. Like that's really clear and unambiguous. And there's no, <clears throat> while there's room for reinterpretation, there's room for finding new things. I liked the logic of it. And I liked that the logic led to this thing that was really elegant. And that made me very excited. That summer, Ryan came home to West Virginia to work as a lifeguard at the neighborhood pool. And he and his dad got to talking. I had just finished the the dinosaur class, and it was kind of just, you know, me and my dad talking and just being like, you know, Dad, I I took this class, and I think there's some meat on the bone here. I think there's something to be said in defense of this evolution thing. And a lot of it was, you know, like, we look at our dogs, you know, we got these Great Danes, those are not wolves anymore. Like something, something happened there, right? Like they're still technically able to interbreed with wolves. They're still technically the same species, but there's some pretty significant morphological differences there. And so it was a lot of conversations like that where we would talk about the logic of it and the medicine point of view of it, you know, like talking about why do people get a fever when they get sick? Like it's not necessarily the infection causing the fever, it's your body trying to fight that off. So like that's an evolutionary response. That's something our bodies evolved to figure out how to do in an era before medicine. And so talking about those sorts of things and having those sorts of discussions and just kind of really pondering through it together and then doing a lot of like reading and reflection on our own on the sides, we both kind of like came together on the whole notion that this evolution thing is, is real. When he got back to California, Ryan took more paleontology courses, got hired in a paleontology lab. He helped researchers do hands-on things like grind up grass and collect sharks. He finally felt a little like the Indiana Jones he'd dreamed of being as a kid. But instead of going after mythical creatures, he was going after ancient ones. Learning how to analyze data, learning how to think through problems in that way kind of broke some of those hopeful beliefs that there might be these really big giant animals out there. But when you look at the statistics of our fossil record, we actually have very, very little of the fossil record uncovered. It's probably 1% ish. And so it was like these mysteries that you liked as a kid may be gone, but here's mysteries you didn't even realize were still out there. So there was plenty of work left to do without finding Bigfoot in my spare time. Mysteries so mysterious, we didn't even know they were mysteries. Right? Well, people did. I just didn't because nobody had told me. And then once they told me, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm in. But when Ryan moved to Wyoming to pursue his PhD, cryptozoology, the investigation into the existence of folkloric animals, resurfaced in his life. I think it was last year or a year or two ago, one of the Christian student groups here on campus at the University of Wyoming brought in a creationist speaker. And my lab found out about it. We're all paleontologists. And so we all decided to go. And his entire first lecture, he gave two lectures. One lecture was on five questions for evolutionists that evolutionists can't answer. Nobody studies evolution, calls themselves an evolutionist. But but his other talk was all about proving that dinosaurs still exist. And in part, he did that by going to the Congo to look for this cryptid called Mukele Umbembe. I'm sure my pronunciation there is terrible, which is thought to be like this sauropod thing that the, the natives have talked about seeing. He, he kind of insulted me a little bit in his talk because he just 
was saying like, if you've never had the chance to see dinosaur fossils, go find your nearest museum. I don't know. Maybe it's in Denver and go see dinosaur fossils. And like, we're on campus. Like you're not a hundred yards from a giant T-Rex statue outside the geological museum. So uh, after his talk, me and my friends asked a couple of questions. We tried to be respectful. You know, it was his time. It was his, it was his performance. And so we weren't cutting, but we were critical. And one of the things I mentioned was like, you know, you said you didn't know where the closest museum that had dinosaur fossils is. We're about a hundred yards away from it. And so I invited him. I said, come, come to the museum, come hang out. And so he, he did, he came and we ended up talking for a while. Ryan asked the creationist about his search for the sauropod in the Congo. The guy said it probably lives in water or burrows into riverbanks. And as far as we know, these long neck sauropods didn't do that. The anachronistic view of these animals, these sauropods, was when the bones were first discovered, it was thought these animals are way too big to live on land. So we thought they had more of like a hippo ecomorph, where they were living in swampy waters, and that water was providing buoyancy so that they could actually support their own weight. We now understand their biology a little bit better, and we also understand that if you have a really long neck, so you're breathing in from your nostrils or from your mouth, and if you put all of that underwater, the pressure from the water on your lungs will actually prevent you from breathing. So it's biomechanically impossible for them to actually submerge without suffocating because they wouldn't be able to breathe from the surface. And so not only are we pretty sure they didn't live in water based on the depositional environments we find them in, but they probably couldn't have survived in water submerged for any appreciable period of time. And so I point that out to him that he said, well, maybe this particular sauropod has changed over time to adapt to its environment. And he cut himself off because he realized the conclusion he was about to make <laughs> basically change over time. There's a word for that. It's called evolution. And, <laughs> and um, he, he didn't want to let himself come to that conclusion. But, you know, we had a, we had a long chat about it and uh, it was perfectly respectful. You know, I disagree almost entirely with everything he says, but we're at least able to talk about it. When you meet people who uh, remain faithful to what they believe, a lot of times they'll be like, what hurt you or what happened? Or, you know, how did like you get angry with God? And it's like, it, none of that is true for most of the people who don't believe or who are either atheist or agnostic that I know. For me, it was going from like astrophysics to evolutionary biology and paleontology like that's, that's the history of the universe up until today, basically. And the more I came to accept that this process called evolution is a pretty reasonable process for how life came to be the way it is on earth. And it does not require the intervention of a, of a creator, a deity. In science, we use what's called methodological naturalism. To do science, you have to assume that there is no God. Nothing outside the natural world Everything that happens is within the universe, right? And methodological naturalism is just how you do the job. Many scientists are also philosophical naturalists where they don't believe that there's anything else outside the world. So a lot of times you get asked, how can you be, you know, a Christian paleontologist or a Christian geologist? And that's how. It's because, you know, when I do my job, I assume that there's no outside hand at play, but I can still believe in that. I just can't test for it. And what happened to me was, as I accepted the tenets of evolution and didn't think that a creator was really necessary for that. I was like, okay. So then I started looking at the origin of life, which is a different question than the evolution of life. Cause 
life is kind of an emergent property of chemistry. You know, the, if, when the chemicals line up in the right way, this thing called life starts happening. And so I started looking at chemistry and got to a point where I also thought that science had a reasonable explanation for how life started. And once it starts, it starts evolving. And so again, the role of a creator was diminished. And then I was like, okay, well, let's go to the formation of the earth, formation of the solar system. And I looked at that and I was like, again, the models, while not perfect, while still being tweaked, are pretty reasonable explanations. And I just kept doing that all the way back to the Big Bang. And then <laughs> once I got to the point where I didn't think any sort of outside supernatural interference was necessary for the Big Bang to start everything off, I was kind of like, well, I don't really need this belief anymore. It was kind of like that that line in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where God disappears in a puff of logic <laughs> when the when the babblefish is discovered. <laughs> and that was the moment, and it took months, years, for, for me to have all of these thoughts and, and reflections. And that was the moment where I realized, I don't think I believe in this anymore. And that was really hard because my grandfather died when I was in high school. Uh, he's still the only grandparent I've ever lost, but we were really close and it was really, really hard for me. And when I stopped believing in anything supernatural or spiritual, it was like he had died all over again because I had been holding on to this hope that like, I'm gonna get to see my grandpa again someday. Like when I die, I'll go to heaven, he'll be there, we'll get to hang out again, it'll be great. And when I stopped believing, I had to let go of that. And that to me was heartbreaking. And like I cried over his death all over again because it was a, it was a different kind of death. It was a spiritual death in a sense. It, it, that does annoy me when people who haven't switched sides like that with their own spiritual journey brush off non-belief as this kind of callous cavalier thing that people are just like doing because they're angry. Because it's like, no, like coming to the conclusion that I didn't believe hurt a lot. It was really hard. It was not fun or pleasant and I didn't do it. I didn't do it on a lark. So uh, that was, that was, that was a moment. And I think one of the great ironies as an adult that I think back on is that if the churches I'd gone to had just been less certain, I think certainty is the enemy here. To be raised in a church that told me everything was certain. And when you're certain, like certainty is much more rigid than uncertainty. Uncertainty is flexible. You can, you can bob and weave with uncertainty, but with certainty, if those certainties are challenged in a way where the challenge is legitimate, then the certainty breaks. Because I'm still not certain. I, I have a belief, but it's open, you know, it's open to new evidence, it's open to new ideas. I'm, it's a, hopefully continuously evolving and changing as I go through life. Our storyteller was Ryan Haupt. He actually answers the five unanswerable questions for evolutionists on another podcast called Skeptoid. We have a link to that at humannaturepodcast.org. And you can listen to more episodes about dinosaurs and Bigfoot on our website, too. Check out episodes 6 and 13. And if you haven't yet, please take a moment now to leave us a review or rating on iTunes. I'm Erin Jones. The show was produced by me, Caroline Ballard, Anna Rader, and Micah Schweitzer. And a special welcome to our new team members, Annie Osborne and Alana Elder. 
Our theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. In our next Science Camp episode, we'll hear from another scientist who's gluing a beard on for a cause. Listen for that on July 12th. It's human.